Welcome back to State of Emergency. This is Peter Schorsch. Joining me today is my co-host, Jared Moskowitz, the former director of the Division of Emergency Management and one of uh, a, a, a frequent guest on almost any podcast that I'm hosting, uh, State Senator Jeff Brandis, a Republican from Pinellas County. How are you, fellas? We're doing great, thanks. I'm great. Good to be with you again, Peter. Uh, I think Senator Brandis was um, made for podcasts because it's like he is the master of a good three-hour uh, policy download on what's going on in Silicon Valley, insurance rates, the future of education. Um, he is a he is a, a walking TED talk for anybody who has had to ride with him to Tallahassee or has been fortunate enough to get coffee with him or maybe perhaps run into him at the governor's club after a long day of session. He'll, uh, he'll be happy to pull you aside and, and, and talk to you some more. So see, uh, I disagree. I think Peter, you and I were made more for a podcast since we both have a face for radio. I think Jeff really would be better with video. He's good looking right now, except, and I had to bust his chops on another one. He's growing out the beard, but I've got some breaking news about that beard, some inside information. Senator, I've heard that you were a patron of the Shave Cave in downtown St. Petersburg. I was I was there really early. I was there like the first one of the first few days they opened. So the Shave was, Cave is this great place in downtown St. Pete, which you can imagine what they do there. Uh, but uh, it's it's turned into a little bit of a political hotspot. People get down there and kind of kibitz and everything like that. Old school barbershop. Uh, you can go in for a massage, uh, a hot towel shave, all that good stuff. Yeah, it was really nice. Great. This is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Jared, you're such... All right. Um, one issue I want to talk about, and it hits close to home, um, is it, it's kind of the lingering issue of the uh, COVID uh, yeah. pandemic part, and it's the vaccine passports on cruises. And I'm not saying that I have four cruises uh, lined up, uh, <laughs> but I do and they're all on Disney and they keep getting pushed back. So basically every fourth cruise that gets canceled, I'm getting a free one and that's where we're at now. This is over a year and a half of, of canceled dates and each time they cancel, they'll give you 125% of your original uh, cruise price. So like I said, every fourth one, I think, uh, basically gets you a free cruise. Um, Jared, what? Does, what's going on with the cruising industry? I mean, where are you at on the vaccine passport? Is the governor right? Is Are the cruise industry right? Um, are the cruises gonna be going again soon? Some of them, I think Royal Caribbean had a little outbreak uh, and, and is not gonna be sailing as quickly as possible, but can we start there? I just, I need to know what I'm doing for my vacation plans in August and September. Yeah, so listen, first of all, I think it's very important for our listeners to know that you openly admit that part of this podcast is to figure out your vacation schedule and when you're on vacation, what kind of shoes you will wear on your vacation <laughs> sponsored by Nike, of course. Nice. So look, p finishing off of what we talked about last week, uh, look, I think the governor is right generally on Vax Pass because I, again, I do think your low income uh, and minority um, residents here in the state of Florida would be dramatically affected by Vax Pass. I can just only imagine businesses turning away low income and minority people from their shop and what that would look like. It would be disastrous. However, I, I don't agree with the governor 
on cruises. I do think every rule sometimes has to have some exceptions. There's just nothing in the world that is 100% absolute. Uh, and I do think the cruise is the Petri dish for COVID. And so I do think in those instances, and maybe it's not forever, but how about just for now? Uh, I, I do think we should let the cruise industry we are a free market society. If they believe they need this to get sailing, I think it's a. I think that's probably the right idea. Senator, I asked you a, a fun question out of Tiger Bay. Um, I said, "Hey, you uh, you've won a free cruise, which I know you like to do, and the the only thing is is that to get on there, you have to get you have to present a vaccine passport, and there's going to be media there, and not that you are unafraid of uh, getting into conflict with the governor's office. We know you don't mind that." Um, but it certainly would stake out a position. So where are you at on the need uh, for Vax passports? I think Jared's got it right. I mean, I really do. And I think ultimately, I mean, I don't think it really works in aviation. There's too much moving parts there, but many people, you know, you don't book a cruise and then get on typically the next day. Uh, you, you typically have some, some period of time and you, and you have a time period where you know what the rules would be. And I think for that industry, for now, it makes sense. Uh, so am I going to be cruising in, all right, I think I have a cruise lined up for about August 10th. Jared, will I be cruising on cruising. the Disney cruise? Maybe cruise. You think I will? August, August 10th, will you be cruising? Yes. So more importantly, I think for the listener there, we should paint the picture <laughs> of Peter Shore on a cruise, sitting out by the pool. Yep. Alone. Huh. What is he wearing? Uh, so it's what, a Disney cruise. So oh, oh, my my fault. Okay, sorry. It's so always going to be a, a Mickey. We're going to have a got it. You're at breakfast. Uh, Mickey and Minnie are there. That's right. Right. Although I heard the new Disney cruises are going to be more like with the Avengers and Star Wars. I mean, that's exciting. I mean, I can tell you. I don't know how the Senator feels like, but anybody that delays Star Wars on a cruise, okay. I mean, that's just somebody that I have a problem with. I think they're going to have a bar that's dedicated, like the coolest thing on the new one, the Disney Wish, um, you actually go into a bar and like the backdrop, like the, it's a, like a high tech screen that looks like you're in space and you can order, you know, the, um, the, uh, the Millennium Falcon um, rum runner or whatever. Um, and so that's, that is definitely one of the things. It is a little weird when you go on, um, they have Star Wars Day at Sea, and that's definitely a very different cruise population than the average cruise. It's already it's already a little bit much, like when you go on these Disney cruises, because it's like you you have to really be into Disney. Like you have to be excited that Goofy is going to be you know there at dinner, um, right. and then you add in the Star Wars thing, and it's like you have to be really excited that there are going to be stormtroopers walking next to the splash pad and yes just that's, imagine i want star, star i want stormtroopers every day uh in my life but now that we've gotten our sponsors out of the way peter um <laughs> you know I, I i mean if the senator wants to weigh in i'd love to hear his opinion i mean obviously there's a lot of conversation this week uh over the governor uh sending uh fdle highway patrol florida fish and wildlife uh to the uh to the texas border uh, you know, a lot of people are wondering whether or not we should be doing that. Uh, and and I, I figured I would throw that up for discussion. The, the, the one vantage point I want to bring out just because I want to get into the minutia of that really quick is actually this request came from 
Texas, and they put it in the EMAC system, which is a system that FEMA uses uh, so that states can share resources and send resources to each other when they request it, and it can be reimbursed by the federal government. So whether you agree with it politically from a ability standpoint, uh, the state of Florida is just following the regular EMAC system where a state requests a resource and then another state decides whether they're going to meet that resource through the uh, emergency uh, management system. Listen, That's interesting. Is, I did not know that. It is fantastic politics, though. I mean, fantastic. Here you are, state in trouble. You're sending your team there. I mean, whether whether it moves the needle on the on the policy, it is fantastic politics. We have to agree. Oh, I agree. I mean, for the governor, I think it is fantastic politics. And so, but the reason I bring it up, Senator, is because I think people can debate the politics of it. I think that's uh, you know, obviously, we everything is political now, and we're in the the, the governor's race has started you know very early. But from an ability standpoint, I saw people questioning whether the governor had the ability to do so. And I just want people to know uh, that uh, that the state of Florida does have the ability to do so uh, in when the power uh, was out in Texas after the giant ice storm. They requested water and personnel from the state of Florida to help set up a logistical staging area. And we used the identical EMAC system to send those resources and people there to help the state of Texas. So they're using the regular federal request system that goes out to other states and then states and governors get to decide whether they're going to fulfill that need. And that's what's happening in this instance. So could they request concrete and rebar to build the wall? So the answer to that is yes, they could. Right. And that would be up to the governor. Uh, to whether or not he would send those materials. And then obviously it would be up to the federal government to decide whether they were going to reimburse those materials because there's no emergency. Uh, there's no emergency that would dictate that, you know, concrete and rebar should be reimbursed by the federal government. So uh, any state can request any resource, whether it's people or commodities uh, to serve a particular purpose. Right, but there's no specific declared event. It's just the the general deluge of uh, of of people trying to leave South America and Central America and come to the United States illegally. Correct. That, that's right. So this think of it this way, Senator. This is the mutual aid system that states use with each other. In Florida, we have Web EOC, which is the mutual aid system that counties use with each other. Right, one county can send generators to the next. The states use the EMAC system to mutual aid between each other. And that's what this is. This is a mutual aid request. No different than when California asked us for fire trucks for their fire. Here in Texas, the governor has decided this is an emergency and that the governor needs resources. And they've reached out to all 50 states. This request didn't just come to Florida, all 50 states. And then it is a first come, first serve who, who, who wants to fulfill that request. And so uh, while, while we could debate the politics and it's great politics for the governor uh, to do that, obviously I think there's a lot more priorities that, that we could be doing in, in the state. Uh, but as far as whether it's allowable, the answer is it's 100% allowable under the EMAC system. Have you ever heard of a movie called The Second Civil War? Um, it was a satirical black comedy made for HBO. I think it's, uh, looking it up, it was from 1997. Does this ring a bell? It had Phil Hartman in it. It no. had uh, Bo Bridges, 
uh, James Earl Jones, James Co uh, Coburn. And it's literally, I don't know if you haven't seen it, but it's literally the governor of Idaho um, <clears throat> tries to close the borders to immigrants. Obviously, that isn't an issue, but it's kind of jokey that it's an issue. And he gets into a fight with the president and the governor of Idaho ends up uh, activating the Idaho National Guard and asking for other states to send in their own National Guard units. Um, and some of the other Western states come out there. And it's again, it's a it's supposed to be a black comedy political story. But it, it it's funny how 25 years ago there was an HBO movie about how states were calling each other in for help to solve their immigration problems. And it, that's what led to uh, a low-grade little civil war. Uh, not that hmm. civil war is ever funny, but that uh, you got to give those. Uh, you got to give HBO credit for having that 25 years ago. Yeah, I'm surprised the Simpsons didn't do it. Look, I, I you know I think it's de definitely a very creative way to of of using the Emac system. Whether it will be allowable by the feds or whether they'll say they'll throw a flag and say this is this is not the intent, um, I think is yet to be seen. Senator, what do you think, and Jared, what did you think about this? Because I I think you know where I'm at on it. What did you think about like Ashley Moody's like kind of performance during the press conference? I, I believe she's, I think she's gone past pa Pam Bondi territory now. Um, she's lost almost all of the cases that she has uh, signed the state up on. I think she's turned it just into this very political, not that it wasn't before, but even, uh, I don't even think Charlie Crist had made the office of AG this nakedly political, this nakedly, nakedly partisan. Uh, I had a Republican that you guys both know uh, send me a note this week just saying, you know, you can win reelection just by, you know, prosecuting some state crime, you know, going after, you know, fentanyl producers. Uh, you don't have to try and sue the Joe Biden administration every week. So I, I wonder, is she... I mean, is she in any kind of danger of losing re-election in 2022? Is she too far out there now? I, I kind of look at it like I, this is not who I thought Ashley Moody was two and a half years ago. I will say that. No, I mean, I don't, I mean, Senator, you go first. If you ask nine out of 10 people on the street who the AG of Florida is, you know, they wouldn't know. Uh, so, you know, the, she gets to message however she wants as it gets close to election. What I would like to see is more focus on the fraud that's occurring in the Florida insurance system, the roofing fraud, the, the, the elder fraud, the phone call scamming that's going on, the types of things that everyday Floridians deal with. And I think that's where, you know, it's all well and good to, to sue the federal government. But I think everyday Floridians want people working on the problems of Florida. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with the senator's first comments, which is I think we believe that people have, uh, you know, such high name ID in these cabinet positions and, and uh, they just don't. Right. There's so many distractions now in life, so much incoming that people don't get to know their elected officials unless they're on television and they're on national news every day. Uh, what I think we're witnessing here, quite frankly, uh, and if you know the attorney general personally, she's a wonderful person. Uh, but but I think what we're witnessing is what we're witnessing around the country, which is elected officials are not just necessarily running for election. They're running for the next office. And so 
I'm not saying I know anything, but I think the calculation is, is that she believes she's going to get reelected and, uh, and maybe she gets an opponent, maybe she gets a nominal opponent. And I think she's jockeying quite frankly uh, to run for governor uh, uh, once, uh, once DeSantis, uh, governor DeSantis is finished. And I think this is a prelude to that. And, you know, what's happening in both parties, so it's not breaking news, is that, you know, Republicans are running to the right, Democrats are running to the left. And I think that's what we're witnessing. I don't, you know, my, my, I see all this nowadays, and I don't even know if anyone even believes the stuff that they're saying anymore. They're saying it because they feel they need to say it uh, in order to break through the, break through the media, uh, make some noise, and appeal to the diehard uh, of, of the base. I would say this, and Peter, you've been around a long time, Senator, you've been in politics a long time. I've not seen a time, at least since I've been paying attention to Tallahassee, where the governor was such a juggernaut that uh, and 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 had so much of the attention that the it, cabinet members struggled for air, if you will. Uh, and so I think that's a little bit of also uh, maybe what we're seeing. 100 percent agree. I mean, honestly, the governor every day is doing something in the media out there. You know, he's he's in national headlines. He's on Fox. He's on the major news networks. And I, I think everybody else is just kind of an also ran. Uh, and that that is it's got to be somewhat frustrating as a cabinet member, uh, especially since they're not really having cabinet meetings anymore. But it's uh, it's it's very true. I mean, the, the governor is everywhere all the time. And everybody else is just kind of playing second fiddle. Can we make the argument, though, that I still believe and I know this sounds naive, but I do believe like Floridians, they do like their politicians to be more center than center right or center left. Um, and I know that I know that I, I know just as well as you guys that the politics are being nationalized and everything like that. But it just. It just seems like Ashley Moody is the attorney general for the Republican Party of Florida. Um, and I just can't think of I and listen, this isn't just a, this isn't just to criticize her or be political. I just can't think of anything that she's done, maybe with the saving of human trafficking. I think that that's one issue where she I don't want to say that it's bipartisan, but there's concern on on both sides. It just seems like every week she is. You know, she signed on to the Texas case uh, for the presidential election. She signed on to the uh, challenge of Obamacare, which got bounced out by the Supreme Court for the third time right now. And then I when you and I, I unfortunately watch the Florida channel, I see her and she doesn't have the same delivery that DeSantis does. And so she just she is so I, I just think that she's in a bad place. I do think somebody like an Andrew Warren, because, hey, listen, if you're saying that 99% of people don't know her, then she's beatable. Like if she's, if it's just her and what she raises her money, you know, then, and she's not DeSantis, then that means that the Democrats can come up with somebody. Um, and I, I do think somebody like an Andrew Warren, I know Dave Ehrenberg's not going to run for it, but I, I, I do feel like you know the beat her. What's that? The ticket drives everything down ballot, right? And yes, that potentially could happen, but I, look, DeSantis, given his current list of challengers, is is gonna you know do I think pretty well, and I think that helps the, obviously everything down ballot, uh, and so ultimately I think she'll be fine. She's gonna win re-election, but this is all about you know securing the future 
and and making sure that you're you're at the top of the list of the of the key endorsements uh, going forward. But I also think that that and I and I would say this generally amongst uh, you know everybody not named DeSantis, everybody's struggling to find a, a space to to show their leadership because DeSantis is pushing on all the major issues, and so you know, where, where are we really leading on as the, as the attorney general? I mean, other, you know, I think there's a lot of all me too, like, you know, I'm doing this as well, but let's show us real leadership. Show us what one issue that you've taken on and you've owned and you're leading the state of Florida on. That's what I'm looking for in cabinet numbers, right? I would love to see Jimmy Petrona say, we're going to, we're going to stop fraud in Florida and we're going to put all the resources we can put towards fighting fraud. And we're going to be the number one state in the country at fighting insurance fraud because we know that's what's driving rates. I would love to see, uh, you know, A.G. Moody take on just one issue and say, we're going to be the best in the country and we're going to put tons of resources towards it. We're going to own the space and we're going to be the national model. That's what I'm looking for from cabinet officials. And I'm not getting it. And it's frustrating. And I'm not, I would say that about the Ag Commissioner as well. I mean, I'll be bipartisan in my, uh, in, in my, in my, uh, beliefs here in that that I would love to see Nikki Freak take on one issue and just own it that isn't marijuana. Well, speaking of marijuana, before we talked about, I want to talk about an issue that you want to talk about, which is insurance, Senator, but let's talk about the marijuana really quick because the Supreme Court bounced another statewide referendum off of the 2022 ballot. Um, and so I guess my question to you at this point is, Will recreational marijuana ever be legalized in Florida? Yes, 100%. The, the interesting thing that's happening right now is with the, especially with these last two cases, is that as much as the Supreme Court is trying to uh, keep marijuana, I think, off the ballot, they're also boxing, boxing themselves in with these decisions. Because it is highly likely that by 2024, you're going to have another round of, of, marijuana uh, ballot initiatives out there, probably led by the cartel who want access to the recreational market because the medical market just isn't big enough here. And the prices are so high that we're just driving people to the black market. So we now know based on these two decisions, kind of what the rules of the game are for getting a metal, for getting an adult use marijuana ballot initiative on the ballot. Uh, I think the, the, the cases are, are, pretty clear now, and they're going to have a really hard time squirming away from the next round of ballot issues. What about you, Jared? I, I don't even, we've never really talked marijuana. Where do you come down on it? You know, the funny thing is, is I'm slightly more conservative on, on the marijuana issue. I mean, I was very supportive of Charlotte's Web. Uh, I was supportive of medical marijuana uh, for medicinal purposes. Um, and I do think at some point in time, we will get to recreational, but I'm not there yet. I don't know that if, if, if we went recreational tomorrow, that that would be good for the state. Uh, could, it, could we be there in two or three years, five years? I, I think so. Uh, but, but you know, right now, I, I'm not sure. Um, I do think, just like a lot of issues, making more progress slowly before you just rip the whole Band-Aid off you know, might be a better solution. But, you know, look, th there, there is no doubt that there's there's the train has left the station on this issue. And it's just a matter of time, whether it happens here in the state or the feds do something. I know people thought at the federal level would have done it by now. But I do think at some point in time, 
we, we will get to uh, a different position uh, on marijuana. 100% that's going to happen. And 100% it will be done by 2024, 2026. You're going to have a constitutional amendment on the ballot. These medical marijuana players that, that are established in the cartel today can, will, will have to grow their markets. And Florida is such a good market with 22 million people, with 130 million tourists, that the amount of resources that would be poured into a ballot initiative that makes it through the Supreme Court would be astronomical. It would make the you know 20, uh, 2018 gaming law look like child's play. You know, one of the big problems with the with any of the uh, initiatives right now is the new law that was passed by the legislature that limits the contributions to committees that are trying to get things on the ballot to the same statewide amount, which is currently $3,000. And so uh, you, John Morgan, uh, let's say that there was a marijuana initiative out there, he could only give $3,000 to it. Um, one of the interesting things that, you know, like you saw the Florida realtors, they're trying to get an affordable housing initiative passed this week. So they put $5 million into a bank account, knowing that on July 1, that $3,000 cap gets put in. I've been told um, that there will probably be a sports betting uh, initiative of some sort that, you know, keep keep your eyes out for that over the next week. Uh, maybe that's the tribe, maybe that's DraftKings and FanDuel and those folks that you might see somebody put in all the money that they're going to need, 20, you know, 20, 25 million dollars to collect signatures, because again, after July one, they're never, they won't be able to put in anything more than uh, three thousand dollars. Peter, I disagree. I think the court's going to throw it out. I think it's unconstitutional on its face, and the court's going to throw it out, and we're going to see tons of resources start flowing into different ballot initiatives. I, I, it's blatantly unconstitutional. If you go back and read the staff analysis, as I typically do, um, it, you know, the Senate staff basically tied themselves in knots telling the legislature that it was unconstitutional. It's three pages of notes when it comes to constitutional issues. It's so then why did it pass? <laughs> well, of course, you know why it passed. I mean, listen. No, I want to hear him say. <laughs> they willed it across mm -hmm. the finish, right? They, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of, of deep thought going into this issue. There was a desire to have that in, in law, and, and so they passed it. But it's not like stand up the court scrutiny. It's going to get thrown out at the first stop and the second stop and the third stop. There will be an injunction before July 1st on that issue. Listen, constitutional amendments, right? Amending the Constitution shouldn't be super easy, right? There should be a threshold. But this bill comes forward right after, okay, we had the you know, constitutional commission that loaded up the ballot with all sorts of constitutional amendments, um, you know, uh, and it comes right after the $15 minimum wage. A and I got to be honest, I mean, it, what it looks like to me, and I think it's just the case, is that this is just the legislature trying to stop the end run around themselves. If we have to go and put stuff in the Constitution, that's an indictment on the legislature and the legislative process as a whole. That means that Floridians do not believe they're being heard and that inaction is what's happening. And you saw it no more than on the Greyhound racing issue. The fact that we had to do that constitutionally because the legislature failed for six years 
to stop greyhound racing. That's why that process exists. If folks in the legislature don't want people to go and put stuff in the constitution, I, I agree it's better to be in statute, then, then we gotta listen to our residents and we gotta deliver legislation that they wanna see. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree in part and disagree in part. I mean, I think 100% the constitution should be hard to amend, but it should not be impossible to amend. And what the current bill does is makes it impossible to amend. It's just, you just, you can't gather the types of resources necessary to put it on the ballot. And so I totally agree. It consolidates power in the legislature. And that is not the intent. That was never the intent, I don't think, of the founders. Um, and I, I certainly shouldn't be the intent of legislators. We have a constitutional republic that has a couple different ways now to put things on the ballot. One, you know, one being through a constitutional revision commission, which hopefully we'll get rid of. Uh, because that has become just a, a political mess. Uh, two is through the legislature, and finally is through a constitutional ballot initiative. To me, the constitutional ballot initiative is is a way for for the the people of the state of Florida to tell the legislature, with no uncertain terms, what what their direction they want us to head in. Um, and marijuana would not still we wouldn't still have medical marijuana in Florida had it not been for a, a strong ballot initiative. Uh, put forth. So I think there are times when it's an absolutely an appropriate tool to encourage the legislature to act or put to, to put, frankly, guardrails on the legislature's actions, which needs to happen. No question. Yeah. And yeah. It's a, it, you know what it is, Peter? It's a good it's a really good way to immediately find out. Do we understand the state and our residents? Here's what I mean. I think people right now would say Florida is a conservative state. We're center right. But the fact that we passed a $15 minimum wage and met that threshold, you know, I don't think people expected that to happen. And what that tells you is that we are still in Tallahassee missing issues that the majority of Floridians really care about. I think um, I think you're right. I'll go a step further and I'll say, you know, I talked with um, Senator Brandis's colleague, Rob Bradley, about this right after the election. And he made a, a point to me about how he was campaigning for his wife. And so he's able to, you know, kind of notice what was going on more. And I think I think he pointed out a statistic that amendment, the minimum wage amendment did as well. Uh, it, it basically ran at the same successful level in the kind of hard scrabble counties that his wife represents, uh, Union and uh, Clay and that kind of, you know, some of those uh, more rural counties. And they also went for Trump. And it was basically, he's making the argument that there's this white working class vote um, that's, you know, they wanted Trump, but they were also willing to vote to, you know, basically increase their pay, increase the pay of those people in their community. And I think those are also the people, you know, I see, you would not believe how many comments the marijuana politics draws on a political website, but just looking at that, our site, you know, a lot of those people that get the marijuana, it's not it's not like 24 year old kids are going to get medical marijuana. They don't need it for that. What it is, is the 68 year old Vietnam vet, you know, who's getting it. it's the guy with, you know, cataracts. It's the, you know, yeah. the older woman. Um, and that's who's I think the audience is. And again, I think that that's the overlap into the Trump voter overlap into the people that were supporting the minimum wage increase. I can't agree with you more, Peter. When I would, when the marijuana constitutional amendment passed for medical cannabis, 
I had a deacon at my church pull me aside in church and say, hey, I just want to thank you for stepping up and, and speaking out in favor of medical cannabis. My wife uses it and, uh, you know, it's been a godsend for her. And I was like, whoa, whoa, you know, this is this just shows you this is way across party lines and and uh, and political boundaries uh, as where this is falling out. And, and so that I think just highlights your point. Now, Jared, give us a second here, because, you know, I, I think all three of us are pretty much dorks. I mean, we are. I think I think that's our 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 weakness. And our I don't think I don't think the senator and I just outsourced that decision to you, Peter. I mean, <laughs> you know, you can proclaim yourself. I mean, I don't I mean, I, I maybe I'm like I'm a step right, like one step above the senator might be two or three steps above that. You know, I mean, well, I mean, listen, I mean, come on, I mean, you're four foot seven. I'm 325 pounds, uh, or not that much. Let's say 305, and you know, and oh, so and, you're 305, but I'm four seven. I mean, it's <laughs> by the way, it's five seven. I will have you know the lifts, the lifts from the last show doing a, a wonderful job. And Jeff is senator 39 to one. So it's like let's not pretend like any of us are, you know, the the super. Or, you know, we're not the super coolest kids in the club. That being said, I got to dork out and give it to my guy. Jeff's got some, he's, it's not that he's breaking news because by the time people listen to this, um, I think we're going to have a story about it, but he and I were talking beforehand. It is kind of a big pocketbook issue. Senator, you want to take over from here? Yeah. So the, the studies for PIP just came out and we've got some kind of early information on what's in it, which basically says that given the current state of affairs of the Senate bill that is now either sitting on the governor's desk or headed to the governor shortly, that that bill will raise rates for average Floridians by 15%. And for those who just buy PIP by uh, an average of 40%, uh, which is pretty overwhelming and pretty damning evidence that that, that bill um, will, will frankly harm people uh, and that it's not the right policy for the state. Imagine, you know, as much as we're paying on everything else, uh, imagine somebody who's just barely affording car insurance now having to go out and buy, an, uh, you know, spend 40% more on their car insurance. Uh, that is not what I think the governor wants, not what I think the, the, the legislature thought it was voting on, and frankly, why me and a handful of my colleagues voted against it, uh, because we saw what this did, uh, and we spoke to the, the people in the insurance industry pretty quickly as the bill was being uh, debated and, and found out that, that the industry thought it was going to raise rates pretty dramatically, and they weren't for that. So, you know, I think it's it's another example of you know, this fire ready aim strategy that we saw this year uh, where they were moving policy that frankly just wasn't ready for prime time. And this bill absolutely wasn't ready for prime time when it got to the floor. What do you think the governor does? I mean, I tell you, I get calls yeah, uh, every two days on, is he going to sign it? Is he going to veto it? What do you think? He vetoes it. I think he's setting it up. So We'll talk more about that in a second. I wanted to say I love how the governor has set the table for himself uh, post-session. Um, you know, he used the budget and the transgender bill to to dominate the news cycle when Nikki was rolling out her campaign. He has used, you know, he's told, you know, Matt Ball and Kathy Mears to send over, uh, you know, Bill X and Bill Y so that the next day, he can roll down to St. Pete or Miami or, uh, you know, wherever he wants to go to, you know, today he went to 
the St. John's County Sheriff's Office to sign the uh, canine um, aid bill. You know, it's just a perfect media hit. You know, everybody, there's no negative, no downside. They give very little notice to the press. So there's not going to be any, you know, meddlesome reporters or anybody like that. It's just a, it's just a perfect hit for them. And they've done that for a month now. And that, and DeSantis has dominated you know, news cycle after news cycle. Well, and that, I think he's Peter, that goes back to the previous strategy before COVID. We you know we, we forget that this was the governor who had major announcements every two days, right? It became a joke, major announcement, major announcement. They, they are doing the same thing with the bill process, dragging it out so that they can make it a bigger show. Although I do, I, I have to say, I disagree on the transgender bill. I think uh, that was their intent uh, but, you know, based on the uh, the stuff that happened with the lights at DOT, the pulse thing that got vetoed, both of which, by the way, I think were unforced errors. I don't think they we were they were connected. I do think that led people to try to connect all of those together. And, and so on, on that one in particular, I don't know that that one uh, landed uh, like they wish they did. But this this bill is going to be vetoed on a Friday night. No way. No way. All right. See, that's what I was saying. See, this is this is going to be vetoed on Shabbat. He's going to veto it on Shabbat. <laughs> he, he's going to veto this and this. He's going to be able he's going to be the hero to everybody. Well, I think what's going to be, be it's what's going to be it, interesting is getting the response from those who supported this piece of legislation once this information comes out. Right. Like, well, would you? As a matter of fact, it's funny. I'm tweeting it out right now. I just got the report. Uh, I mean, it, again, this blog, this pod going to be out for, you know, uh, on Saturday. So people will get that. Uh, it'll be already circulating, but it's going to be interesting to see what. Where, where are the people who supported this now that this information comes out? Are they still in support? Who was and pushing it, Jeff or Senator? Who was pushing? The, I mean, who was on the other side of it? I know the insurance companies were not. No. God knows they were advertising enough. Well, I mean, I think I think there are plenty of insurance companies who'd like to get away with PIP. I think it's just the broader language of this legislation that they don't like. I mean, this is much more than, hey, we're moving away from PIP and moving to a mandatory BI system. This is a mandatory BI system with a lot of caveats, which is if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you're setting yourself up for bad faith, which is where the trial bar wants everybody to be. They want to play in the bad faith world because then you can pierce policy limits, right? So at the end of the day, this, this bill is a lot more than just moving away from PIP to, man from, from PIP to mandatory BI. This is a, a, a laundry list of requirements on insurance companies uh, and, and on the insureds that is, that's what's driving the rates up. Senator, I have a good question. Uh, and I want, cause I think you're, you've been a leader on both these issues. Uh, autonomous vehicles and insurance. And so I'm wondering, do you think this is in response to the fact that the more autonomous vehicles, the more autonomous technology, the less accidents we're going to have? Do you think that they're trying to get ahead of that no. decreasing market? No, I, I, no, I don't. I don't think that at all. I mean, I think this is just an issue that we're, that Florida really is a lot outlier in the states that still have PIP. PIP has been, you know, PIP is not a perfect system. Uh, it's not a perfect system in Florida. That's why most other states have gotten rid of it. But Florida is also a judicial hellhole, uh, one of the, the most litigious states in the country, uh, you know, home to some of the largest law firms in the country that specialize in car accidents and other issues. And, and it's a reason that Floridians pay, uh, whether it's car or, or home insurance, 
much higher rates than, than our counterparts, even in Georgia and, and other Southern states that are hurricane prone. Um, it's the litigious nature of the state. It's the fact that the legislature hasn't done real tort reform in years. And the, the fact that the trial bar not only plays so heavily, but has decided that to, to not only support members, to, but to become members. And then they can support their it, initiatives from the inside. Well, that's no different well, than, than that's no different than other people who get elected and bring their profession, whether they're a doctor or a lawyer, you know, or someone who's in a union. I mean, everyone brings obviously their perspective, but but your 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 points your points are still still well taken. Florida being the last to do anything though is not breaking news. I mean, we were the last state to fix the internet uh, the the internet advantage over small businesses and brick and mortar. Uh, the last state in the union to do that. We're, it's either us, Alabama, or Mississippi. We're always the last three to do that, even though we're the third largest state in the country. Yeah, I just think, Jared, the trial bar plays at a totally different level than the other organizations. You might get somebody from the hospitals that come in. You might get somebody from, you know, a, a nursing home industry or some other industry that comes in and, and, and is one member, but not at the scale that we see the trial attorneys play. And it's amazing because the trial attorneys have been made the boogeymen and women for decades. And yet, and they, you know, there's only a handful of lobbyists for the FJA. It's not like they have 200 people up there. And they got Porter and a couple of firms, Jeff Porter and a couple of firms. I'm amazed at how much influence they do. When you look, they're usually, it's usually two or 300 lobbyists on the other side of them. And it's not that they win but they are able to mitigate their losses to an amazing degree. I mean, they just they just beat you by attrition on issues like on this. I mean, they got this across the finish line, um, you know, against almost, I mean, I, look, go look at my website and you'll see a dozen sets of ads from different groups, you know, calling for a veto of this bill. I mean, it's not like there aren't resources on the other side. Well, well I, think what, I think what they've done and what other organizations have done and I say this as a Democrat from the minority, something the senator has had, didn't have to deal with his time in Tallahassee, is we had these organizations that supported Democrats. And as more and more power gets consolidated in the majority and more and more power gets consolidated in the Senate president and speaker's office, I think you've seen a number of organizations that historically supported Democrats or primarily Democrats. I think you see a lot of those organizations now shifting towards the majority realizing, uh, you know, they have to establish relationships, even if the majority doesn't do policy they don't like, they have to establish relationships to mitigate that policy uh, because the, the minority has just been in this session more so than the, the eight years I was in Tallahassee, the, the minority has just been so pushed out to irrelevancy that I think that's what you're seeing with the trial lawyers. And I think you see that with other organizations. Let's see if we can land the plane here. Um, Jared, you were late. You, uh, I, I did want to ask you today. Well, I, wasn't, I wasn't late to the recording of the podcast. I was just late to the starting of the podcast. No one would have known that if you didn't reveal the behind the curtain details. I want to know what kind of dork fest is the Hurricane Conference. And like, are you like a hero there? Like, is, I mean, are you like, what does that look like? Uh, you were at some hurricane, like, is that, were you at the big hurricane conference? Are there rival hurricane conferences? What does the food look like at that? Is there a good, is there a good reception for that? Um, you know, how's that looking? 
So this is the National Hurricane Conference, which is, which is historically in Louisiana. We in Florida have the Governor's Hurricane Conference, so they are rival hurricane conferences. The Governor's Hurricane Conference was canceled this year uh, because of COVID. Uh, the conference was fine. It was mostly vendors, vendors, on, you know, obviously who uh, respond to disasters have done extraordinarily well this year because of COVID. Uh, so they were all there with their booths and with dinners, uh, not a lot of city, counties and states attending, obviously because of COVID, travel restrictions, cuts in budgets, things of that nature. So uh, am I a hero there? Uh, no, because there's other uh, state directors just like myself who, uh, quite frankly, are probably all heroes in, in the work that they did uh, this year. Uh, but obviously, you know, a lot of discussion about Florida. Florida got more national attention, negative national attention, uh, than any other state, wrongfully so, uh, for political reasons, for business reasons. And so a lot of discussion about, you know, what was it like, Florida, how did it go, the politics. I mean, other states didn't deal with that. Uh, like we, uh, like the governor and I had to deal with here in Florida. So, you know, that was the, that was something unique. Right. But you didn't answer. Is there a good spread? Are they taking care of you? Are you getting comped? Is it, is this near a casino? Like, give me a sense of the nightlife. Are you guys, are you guys partying late talking, you know, talking hurricanes and then, then hitting the town. Uh, so uh, the answer <laughs> is uh, there is, there was a nice spread which I know you're very interested in. Um, uh, you know, there were, some, there were some parties. I mean, I'll tell you, it was weird in a lot of ways because this was the first convention gathering I've gone to since the pandemic started. And you saw people who haven't seen each other in a year and a half and they wanted to hug each other. And sometimes they did, but it, it was uncomfortable. Someone sneezed or coughed and everyone looked at them that they, that they like cursed out loud. Uh, so, you know, there, 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 there was some of that still tension, but it's good to see people trying to get back uh, back to normal. Really, it, it really is a, a nice thing to see. Uh, and that's the that's this is the industry that that helped you know, respond and, and, and make it happen. I went down to a conference. Um, let me tell you about who a hero was. You go down to the autonomous vehicle conference down in Miami. Jeff Brandis is, is the one-eyed man in the land of the blind. I mean, he is, he walks into this, like, kind of like, it's like a, you know, it's a warehouse in Wynwood. So it's like, it's already like this cool area. They've got like, like cool food trucks, cool drinks, you know, everybody looks great because, you know, it's like, you know, Miami. Um, and, you know, it's just all these technology people, like they just, you know, Ford, GM, you know, uh, Way Waymo, all these people, all these billionaires. And I'm telling you, Brandis walks in there like Carlito in Carlito's way. I mean, he owns that little space of the world. Well then, before we get to uh, before we get to ask us anything, let's put let's put the center in in the hot seat for a second uh, on autonomous vehicles and technology. I have two questions for him. One is is Tesla's stock overvalued, and <laughs> does Bitcoin really even matter? Um, the the answer to both is probably yes. I think Bitcoin really matters. Um, Bitcoin is is taken off, and it's an alternative form of value, and to the extent that people believe it has value, like art or everything else, it, it's going to matter. 
Um, and as more and more companies accept it, as more and more commerce is built around it, it will matter even more. Uh, and so I think that that's the answer to the first one, or to the second question. To the first question about Tesla, look at all of the companies getting into the electric vehicle space. I mean, GM dedicating billions, Ford, new F-150 Lightning is coming out, uh, taken off. I mean, the, by tens of thousands of pre-orders. And so I think it's really interesting to see what's going on in that space. Just to kind of talk a little bit about what's going on in mobility right now. If you think about a, a kind of a timeline, 2010 to 2020 was really the beginning of the discussion about the shared economy. You know, we, we saw micromobility taking off, companies like DoorDash and everything else, kind of Uber, Lyft, kind of begin to emerge in the marketplace. 2020 to 2030 will really be the, the world of electrification, where we have, you know, today less than 2% of vehicles on Florida roads are electric, but by the end of the decade, it will probably be 25% of all new cars sold will be electric. I own an electric car. I'm not going back to an internal combustion engine. I just know that. Um, and so I think you're going to see this massive transition take place over the next decade, really unlike anything we've seen since the shift from a horse and buggy to the Model T. That's going to occur pretty quickly here. Uh, and, and, and then if we move to, to the end of 20, the 2020s, to beginning of 2030 and the, into 2040s, that's really the world of, of kind of the um, automation that will take off. And so now you have these three mega trends that are combined uh, like Voltron to totally reshape the mobility landscape. And you're going to see it first in trucking and agriculture. Uh, you know, I can't imagine a farm in 2030 that isn't so automated uh, that it begins to really impact the, the overall workforce. Same in trucking at, towards, the, towards the end of the 2020s to, to the middle of 2030s when we see automated trucking just take off uh, and a lot more goods being shipped in automated trucking because it radically reduces the time frame of shipping uh, and, and is very competitive now with rail uh, in a lot of areas. So you're going to see these three mega trends take off. I think the question for you, Jared, having done emergency management and, and thinking about evacuations is when 25% of the cars on the road are electric, are we going to be able to handle that? Uh, and when oh, we wow. have yeah, no, that's been a question that we've been discussing, quite frankly, because the biggest issue with electric cars is when the power goes out, right? Now, you know, if the power goes out, a lot of gas stations have generators, more gas stations are getting generators, and you can get fuel in there. But if the power goes out, uh, how do people charge? Or if they have to evacuate further distances and they can only go 280 miles uh, on a charge, and, you know, how, do, how can they evacuate far? These are excellent questions. And Senator, I don't know that the emergency management uh, industry has an answer yet. I think technology is going to have to solve that answer. Um, well, because I, I, go ahead. I think it's, it's one of the areas where I think the state has a strategic role to play in ensuring that there's a diverse group of charging network. The, there's a diverse set of charging networks available because to your point, we don't know where there's going to be power and where there's not. And we also can't have everybody backed up on I-4 for two miles waiting to get to the next rest stop to, to, to charge their vehicles. We have to have a diffuse, diverse uh, group of charging networks uh, 
throughout the state of Florida. We need to be partnering with gas stations. We need to be partnering with shopping centers. We need to be partnering. We need to lift the federal prohibition against charging stations at rest stops. It's an all hands on deck situation to, to solve this problem. You're not incorrect, but right now we don't even mandate generators. You know, we mandated generators only on evacuation routes in limits in limited areas to have a specific amount of pumps uh, to even meet the threshold. So there are still thousands of gas stations across the state of Florida that people go to that are closed, not because they don't have gas, but because they can't get the gas out of the ground because the state has not. Uh, mandated generators or provided a program for gas stations to get generators in the in the recharging area. I, you're 100 right. I do think the state has a role to try to get more superchargers out there. But if we have a Wilma situation where the power goes out for two weeks, how are people going to drive their cars around uh, if all if the superchargers are down? Uh, in two or three counties. And so these are things that don't yet have solutions, but that we got to be thinking about and catching up with the trends as more and more vehicles become autonomous. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately what you're going to see is some type of surcharge on electric vehicles. And hopefully we can take a portion of that surcharge and dedicate it towards evacuation, charging, and even generators for gas stations so that they can actually pump the gas out of the ground. Uh, to me, it is at a level where I think a vast majority of Floridians would support the, the fact that the government has stepped in and, and assisted with that type of, of program. Yeah, it's why FPL is spending a ton of money burying the power lines, because these things are not mutually exclusive, right? The more power lines that are underground in the state of Florida, the less likelihood that power will go out, the more superchargers that would be able to survive a, a, a hurricane. And so, you know, these things are all happening. But to your point, Senator, they're all part of a picture. And you know what? That's a great issue for you to lead on, you know, next year uh, to talk about, you know, what are we doing in the emergency management space, we should be leading the country uh, in emergency management space and electrification, because as more and more vehicles become electric and you evacuating east to west, you can't really go too far. So it's a north-south evacuation. Uh, we gotta be ready uh, to handle that. And, and we can't be caught behind because if we get caught behind, you will see cars stuck on the highway uh, in, in the worst of situations. Absolutely. Senator, the way we usually close out this show is an ask me anything. We're going to let you ask Jared and I um, uh, each a question and that we have to answer. I want to pivot to one question to you first, but I also want to say happy Father's Day to both of you. I know uh, on a firsthand basis uh, what incredible dads uh, both of you are, especially you, Senator. I mean, Jared, I don't know you as well. Senator Brandis is responsible for where we bring our daughter to school and um, you, um, you know, what you've done uh, with all of your kids and all the situations and you got four running around and all that. Um, I just uh, bravo to both of you uh, as, uh, as good dads out there. Um, with that, I want to ask you a question, Senator, and then you can pivot back to the ask me anything. Um, you are known for being on the cutting edge, as Jared was kind of saying, especially on the technology and stuff. But you also bring up issues that not a lot of folks are thinking about and sometimes they get traction, sometimes they don't, sometimes they just, it's interesting to have the debate. So for next session, 2022, obviously redistricting is gonna be a huge part 
but what's one big issue that we haven't been thinking about that is going to that you're going to you know bring to the fore um, in your final legislative session? Sure. So it's going to be prison reentry. Uh, so one of the biggest challenges we have, if you think about the, the years of work I've been doing on criminal justice reform, um, I've really been focused on what I think are the, the front end problems, the sentencing guidelines for the state of Florida, the mandatory minimum sentences. Um, but I haven't done a lot of work on the back end. And the back end is, all right, you're getting you're going to get out of prison. What jobs and skills do you have? About a third of our functionally illiterate, can't read above the fourth grade level. Um, they don't have a lot of skills. And today they leave prison with 50 bucks and a bus pass. That's not good enough. We have to get give them skills and have to have um, the ability for them to get a job when they get out. The key indicators of somebody's success and not returning to prison uh, when, they, when, when they end their sentence is what type of family are they going back to and do they have a job lined up? We can't deal with the family. That's there's there's very little the state's going to be able to do to, to improve somebody's family once they've been in prison. But we can help them know how to read. We can have them have skills. We can be ready for them to enter the job market. Uh, this is my last year. This is a, a project I've been working on for for years, and this is what I'm really going to be pushing on the last my last term. Awesome. All right, your turn, Senator. All right, Jared. What was a typical day during COVID for you? What was a typical day like in the EOC? Yeah. What was a typical day? Like, when did you get up? What did you do for a typical day? Yeah, so, you know, let's go back to what a typical day was, let's say, in, in late March, which I would say was the, the busiest time during PPE. So uh, I was in the office uh, at 7. Uh, we would have a meeting to figure out, you know, what closed out the, the evening before. We would then get into a – we immediately go right into what I would say was a boiler room. We were all around a conference table working the phones, 10, 12 of us. We had the vendors in the room with us. You know, this started, you know, around 7.30, 7.45. We would do – we would call everybody. I mean, everybody. We had hundreds of emails that were coming in with offers of PPE. We had to figure out who actually had it, uh, who was real, who wasn't. Uh, we had people we were deploying via plane and on the ground going to check warehouses, uh, managing all of that. Uh, and it was it was really just pandemonium drinking from a fire hose during that period of time. We would start at seven and we would go until midnight at the EOC and then we would go home and we would not get off the phone until two or three uh, in the morning and the phone would start again at six o'clock. I mean, I was sleeping about four hours uh, in, in, that, in that late March uh, time period. In, in a way, a lot of what was going on, I don't even remember because we were just working on fumes um, you know, after just doing that for a couple of weeks. And I had to try to explain to people even though we were sprinting every day, it became obvious that this was going to be a marathon, that this wasn't something that was going to end in a couple of months, kind of like a hurricane response. And so, you know, while you're burning it in both ends, trying to pace yourself so that you can go the distance. I mean, we went, you know, 400 plus days in the EOC uh, at, a, at a level one, the longest ever uh, by almost triple. So uh, it, 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 there is nothing, I hope in my lifetime and lifetimes thereafter. I hope that there's nothing the EM um, folks and, and us as a society ever 
see again where there's this giant emergency and we did not have the commodities to respond appropriately, whether that was PPE, whether that was swabs, whether that was test kits. I mean, we were competing against everybody but Antarctica for a limited amount of supplies. Uh, and it, it just, it's never something I imagined when I took the job. Uh, and it's, it's not something I would wish uh, on, on, on my worst enemy. Oh, that's a great answer. Uh, and Peter, here's your question. You mm -hmm. run most kind of prolific political blogs in the state of Florida. You've, you've by far got some of the, the most interesting news coverage. You're read by the, the you know, 160 legislators pretty much every day. Um, what is, what, what's really moving the needle on your blog right now? Like what's generating a lot of comments or what's the kind of one issue that the legislature isn't really addressing that you're getting hits on? That's actually two questions because I would say the the issues that legislature are are not addressing probably don't move the needle as much as other things on the site. Um, you know, the things that move the needle on the site um, is Ron DeSantis, it's Matt Gates, it's Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis. Um, you know, there just is uh, there's just a hunger from a national level about DeSantis uh, for the last um, year and a half. And, you know, our site's traffic really changed, you know, during the pandemic. If you remember, Jared and his cohorts were trying to keep the news of the cases in Florida secret. And then I broke that open and, <laughs> and um, our traffic instantly tripled. And, you know, we were suddenly a site of like 3 million views instead of like trying to get to a million. And that, that really changed everything. Just the daily coverage of COVID, um, you know, I think told people that we were just gonna be a respectable news organization in addition to the political stuff. Um, and so traffic's kind of like a lot of people, you know, traffic has died off because uh, Trump isn't around, you know, like Trump stories were great for traffic. Um, and so now we're back to our bread and butter, which is the second part of your question, which is the issues um, you know, what, what is going to impact Tallahassee, et cetera. And that, you know, again, that's what people are coming to us for. And I'll, I think probably one of the things that really generated a lot of traffic was the gaming deal. Um, overall, there was just a lot of general audience interest in sports betting uh, from, you know, number one, uh, from a lot of other websites that are are making money off of that you know whether you know a lot of a lot of sports media right now has transitioned to sports betting media including like the big ones like espn and everything like that so having the intel on what was going on with the gaming bill um was just you know probably over the last two or three months um there just was a lot of interest there remains a lot of interest um, and what is, is what's going to happen on the sports betting bill. And then, you know, just to close it out, remember our, our bread, our real bread and butter is campaign coverage. Uh, you know, there just is a lack of local campaign coverage. And so just basics about who's running and how much they raised and what they're doing, you know, from Jacksonville down to Key West, uh, that really drives a lot of our coverage. So I appreciate the question. A context scale, just because I don't think many people have context. You were obviously had a blog during Governor Scott's tenure as well. 
Yeah. On a scale from one to ten, where was Scott in driving traffic versus where is DeSantis? I would say it's it's not even close. I think it's probably like our traffic is our personal traffic, you know, is probably ten times what it was during Rick Scott. And he never had, you know, one of the things that we do that other people do not do. But well, we how many times do. can people read about jobs? I mean, really, at some point it gets a little boring. Right. So DeSantis will go on Laura Ingram at 10 o'clock. And I, I, I'm serious about this. DeSantis after dark is a completely different beast uh, than Ron DeSantis at a press conference or even even like like regular freewheeling Ron DeSantis. He does get sharper, I think a little bit meaner, a little bit more condescending, a little bit more partisan. Um, you know, he's playing to his audience. It's also where he's strongest because it's where he came from. And so we will assign a reporter to cover, you know, DeSantis talking about critical race theory at 1030 at night and just doing a story on that, which a lot of the other Florida media does not do. They don't have the resources really to do it. We'll clip something of that and that will be uh, that will drive traffic for a day and a half. Whatever DeSantis said to Mark Levin, Hannity or Laura Ingram. And Rick Scott never had that. Like Rick Scott was not making the rounds Um you know, but to Jared's thing, I would say, you know, really where Scott was busiest for us was when he was uh, Hurricane Scott. And it, whenever, like, that was his strongest position, and that's when people wanted more information um, about Rick Scott. Was uh, It's like him in the yeah. Navy cap and the windbreaker was definitely his superhero mode. I want to go back to this DAD, DeSantis After Dark, raw coverage <laughs> I, I mean i like that I, that could be a show or a club quite frankly you really have to read the articles and read what he says read aj gankarski because he stays up and he watches it and he gets the radio hits and man he he lays into biden at a much different i level. lived it peter i lived yeah, it I'm sure, i don't have yeah. to watch it i don't have to watch it all right speaking of that um again happy father's day guys um you can follow all of us on Twitter. I think Jeff Brandis is at, at Jeffrey Brandis. Um, Jared Moskowitz, he is at Jared E. Moskowitz. And then I'm at Peter Shorsh FL. Very excited that floor, FLA under slash POL got verified by Twitter this week. So I guess we finally made it. Um, we'll have this podcast up over the weekend. And then we'll be back next week, probably off the week after that for July 4th. I really don't want to interrupt my vacation, Jared. So I'm going to take that break. Any last words, Mr. Moskowitz? No, sir. Nope. I like that we started the show with your vacation and we ended the show with your vacation. <laughs> That's all I do. All right. Thank you, Senator. Take care. Thanks. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.